Hello, I'm Amy Moran from Oxfam, and uh, thanks for tuning in to the Oxfam podcast. Today, we're carrying on with our book banter series, a book review show where Oxfam staff tell us all about their latest reads in relation to their work. So I've got with me here Francisca Major, a researcher at Oxfam. Hi, Francisca. Hello. What have you been reading? All right. So lots of stuff. But the book I want to talk to you about is called Nudge, um, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. And you might have uh, heard about this because Richard Thaler recently got the um, Nobel Prize in Economics, partly for the work that's described in this book. Okay, great. So what's the book about and uh, why did you decide to read it? The book is about so-called nudges, and that's a term that the authors coined. And I actually picked this up before he got the Nobel Prize. It just took me a little while to read it. But anyway, I'll describe what a nudge is in a second. Um, the context and why I decided to read this is basically um, linked to a conference about evidence for influencing that we both went to. And lots of people presented examples of work that they are doing from within Oxfam and outside Oxfam um, and how they're trying to communicate messages effectively to whatever target audience you're talking to. And that can mean adapting what you're doing ever so subtly or not so much um, in order for it to move your audience the most. So that's sort of the context that I came out of thinking, well, you know, surely there must be something in the literature, um, something scientific about research that's being done into these sort of small nudges um, in talking to people. So tell us a bit more about what is a nudge. So the, the tagline for a nudge, um, and I really do feel like there, this would work well on in a commercial is if you want people to do the right thing you should make it easy for them so a nudge is defined as a very deliberate little design feature in a policy or a piece of communications material even an advertisement or other tools where you're interacting with people and trying to get them behave in a certain way. So an example um, that's used a lot in this literature is whether you're um, enrolled for a retirement savings fund. So the government wants you to save for retirement and you can enroll um, in a retirement fund through lots of different ways. Um, You can do it through your employer, you can do it privately and so on. But the nudge here is whether you um, as the consumer have to sign up yourself or whether someone signs you up automatically. Why do we need nudging? So essentially, we need nudges because humans are flawed in the way that they make decisions in lots of different ways. We have lots of biases that come in when we think we're making an objective, reasonable decision. So for example, inertia which is a great illustration of what I was talking about earlier with a retirement fund. So we converge towards the status quo. We like to put things up. We don't like to invest time to change things that that are potentially risky. And we revert to the stuff that people around us are doing. So we make decisions on fairly sort of imperfect information system um, uh, that are full of biases. And nudging just means that you play with the system in a very deliberate way to encourage that people make or adapt certain decisions that are good for a certain outcome. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people come across it, but don't even think about it. So what's your main takeaway from the book? So uh, lots of things. It's definitely food for thought. I think the main thing I took away that in nudging in this 
definition is a tool. It's not an end in itself. So this means it's somewhat apolitical. You could apply nudges to lots of different um, behaviors and lots of different problematics. It does. It means that it doesn't really have a morale in it of itself. Um, it is just a, a means to an end and not an end itself. And this is I think something that um, in the charity sector we're a bit skeptical of because we really believe in what we're doing and we think that we should communicate and talk to people and convince them because of our message and what we believe in and not necessarily because we're smart about the way that we say it and that should that arguably should come secondary. Could you go a bit more into about how you think Oxfam uses yeah. nudges do we use nudges do we use them effectively and how can we how can we maybe use them better so they're giving us a toolbox and showing us um a couple of applications that are directly translatable to the stuff that oxfam works on and the takeaway there for me is that we are already engaging and lots of nudging across lots of different components of what oxfam does so for campaigns, for example, um, but also in programs. An example um, would be of social nudging is when people donate money to us, we try to nudge them towards making it a permanent donation. And this can be done through the interface online. Um, for example, when you select the amount, the default is that it's a permanent donation. Yeah. So we do that and lots of other organizations do it. That's a nudge. In our programs, when we work in countries to for example, reduce violence against women and girls. Something we work with a lot are social norms. So we talk about how unacceptable a behavior is um, and that it's increasingly becoming the norm not to engage in that behavior. And that's a nudge. Um, so there's really examples all around us of where we're already doing this. Yeah, that's really interesting. And we are probably doing it, but we don't any, have any sort of systemic sort of approach to it either, do we? This is the thing. Absolutely. I think everyone, this is, you know, this is not rocket science. It's quite intuitive in a lot of ways um, that we would need to um, follow some of these principles for what we do. Um, and I think lots of people have an intuitive understanding that that's, that's right. Otherwise, we wouldn't put out the social norms work and so on. Um, but to really um, bring that all together and think about it systematically is something we could invest a bit of time in. So going back to the book itself... Yeah. Um, what do you wish there was more of in the book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's written from a very American perspective. Um, unsurprisingly, that means there is a bit of toxic language around what I would call the social contract in the society. So something like high tax rates. Um, and that could be due to the American centrism of the book. But it says in multiple places things like, you know, nobody likes taxes, but we all have to pay them. And I was like, you know, um, you hang on. <laughs> it's not that I like paying money into taxes, but I do recognize that they're that they're important. So I think that the book assumes a different type of social contract than what we have going on in Europe, in, in the UK, but in Europe in general. The second thing that irritated me a bit is that the book doesn't talk enough about the moral limits 
of nudging or with sort of weighing up harmful and um, favorable behaviors against each other overall. And I say that having said previously that it's a toolbox and it's just a means to an end. And, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't think that it's uh, what the, the examples so much that they give, but rather the way we do these things that are the takeaway of the book. But yet, as with the language about the social contract, I think you have language coming through um, that shows that there aren't any limits to how far these experiments should go in their minds. And I think at some point they say you can continue with harmful behavior as long as you pay for the social cost, which I think is quite cynical um, and negative. And this is, this is the point where I think the book and Oxfam sort of diverge and we, we're just fundamentally on two different pages. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Um, so just to sum it all up, why should people read this book? People should read it because we fundamentally don't really know what choice means on a daily basis. We think we know um, and we think we make informed choices all the time. But I think what they show really well is that it's a lot less clear cut than that. Where does liberty to choose something start and end? It's not clear. It's a lot more blurry than you think. And that was a very interesting exercise to to throw yourself in. Then obviously there's all the great examples of little changes to what we're doing or what we could be doing that um, are really valuable, especially if lots of people read it and came together to really strategize about it. And then finally, there's also the idea of these really harmful or potentially toxic nudges that you can think of. Because once you give people a toolbox, you know, they could use it for whatever. They could use it to nudge people towards really unhelpful behavior or really unhealthy behavior. So for the bad stuff, if you will. Um, but those are the rules of the game in a way. We're, we're, we're playing the same rules as everyone else. And if um, companies, for example, or other organizations or politicians are using nudges in that direction, we, we need to have a framework to understand what they're doing and what it's grounded in to, to, be, um, to be mindful of it and to be critical of it in a way that's informed and evidence-based. Thank you, Francisca. Just to remind our listeners, the book is called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness by Richard Taylor and Cass Sunstein. For those of you who want to delve into more in our book banter series, you can uh, check out our Views and Voices blog, where Francisca and other Oxfam staff have been writing more book reviews. So stay tuned for the next episode of the book banter. We will be back soon. And thank you very much for tuning in.